On today's Stuck In, Zlatan is back and gracing us mere mortals with his godly presence, while another genetically mutated geriatric, Cristiano Ronaldo, strikes and gets way more of our bandwidth than we wanted or expected, including in a halfway decent interview with some Portuguese guy. Plenty of segments, including a fun new one, and believe it or not, a hat tip to none other than Voldemort himself, Jose Mourinho. Plus, Jared does something rarer than a Newcastle win. He opens up and we end the pod on a serious and heartfelt stoppage time winner. We've got more ground to cover than Jack Harrison looking around town for a barber when Leeds play away. So, without further ado, let's get stuck in. Stuck in a Farmers League soccer podcast. Today is Monday, September 13th, 2021, and we are just over the moon to start today's show off with such a cool story about the world's best footballer making his triumphant return after an extended absence and even scoring in that return. Even now, being in his late 30s, he's still got it. And I'd say he's got to be the front runner for the Ballon d'Or this year. Of course, Jared, I'm talking about none other than the greatest of all time, the GOAT. Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Zlatan is indeed the GOAT, and yes, he did get a t- nice goal, tap in, but a good good run, good solid play. Uh, this would be in Milan's victory over Lazio, so a good start to the season for them. And, uh, I mean, you know, obviously, all jokes aside, we, we talk a lot about Ronaldo and his ability to stay in peak fitness, et cetera, et cetera. But Zlatan's ability to keep coming back from these injuries at this age is is really fantastic. It's 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 astounding. It's not real. It's like, what is he? He's made of like space material or something. No, yeah, his body like literally doesn't make sense. And and he's not, it's not like one of these things where he's like uber jacked, where it's like, oh, yeah, he's like shooting up steroids, right? Like, he's not like the most jacked guy in the world. He's built or whatever, but it's nothing, you know, spectacular. But I mean, just every time he gets one of these injuries, you just figure, oh, that's got to be it. That's got to be it. That's got to be it. But each time he rehabs, takes his time, comes back, and is still productive. So uh, just, uh, just a fantastic story for him. Yeah, no, another knee injury here. He's been out for the last four months. And then again, yeah, makes his triumphant return, scores a goal, 2-0 two, two no win against Lazio. And by the way, I mean, just a couple weeks shy of 40. I mean, it, it's just truly unbelievable. I think back to his uh, ACL, was it when he was at United or whatever? But the bottom line is the guy recovered from an ACL in like eight months. It, like what is th- – this guy is an actual alien from outer space. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's one thing to have like – 
I mean, it's not completely unheard of for maybe a 22-year-old to be able to have an ACL right. and come back quickly. But to do that at what, 37 or whatever he was at the time, and as you said, it's not the first one. It's This isn't yet another one. Um, yeah, it, it just it's astounding. It doesn't make sense. But again, I'm a, you know, on the field, I'm a big fan. Off the field, he's, he's kind of said some things which kind of made me scratch my head a little bit. But I love watching him play. And, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that he can continue to stay healthy for Milan and and score some more goals and, and play in the Champions League as well because we haven't seen that in a couple of years and and I look forward to that hopefully uh, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and obviously, you know who I was sort of uh, uh, you know beating around the bush about uh, and and trying to pull the old fake on is uh, to get people to think that I was going to start with Ronaldo and don't worry, you're going to get plenty of Ronaldo in this podcast. Uh, I'll talk about that uh, with my interview guest. Um, but yes, uh, Ronaldo did make his triumphant return uh, as a late 30 something uh, back to old Trafford uh, in again, one of the uh, most astounding uh, transfers in that transfer, which most people, by the way, Jared are saying is probably like the craziest, most insane transfer window of all time. Uh, but Ronaldo does come back to old Trafford uh, and Ronaldo's your Newcastle uh, four to one scores a brace in his return. Yeah. I mean, and this is really a, a return to maybe like, I don't know, like his 2009 form on a day where he simply would not take no for an answer. And against their will, he penetrated those trying to stop him with regularity and didn't care what they had to say about it. So what can you say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost like um, he didn't have the consent of those that he you know, penetrated uh, on the weekend. Um, but do you think he'll pay any any consequences for that, Jared? No, I mean, it seemed like he was able to go between Freddie Woodman's legs whenever he wanted to, regardless of mm. whether or not he had permission. And and I don't you know, if they gave him the, uh, the, the seven shirt without, you know, breaking all rules to do that, then I don't really see, uh, you know, certainly any legal legal issues here, maybe just a. Uh, an issue of civility by opposing supporters throughout the season. Mm, I see. I see. Okay. Um, and, and yeah, just to kind of end on the Ronaldo thing there straight away. Uh, so uh, Ole saying he won't play in every game. How do you think that's going to work? Um, this is going to be interesting, right? Because obviously he's a player who uh, can be a, a bit of a, a black hole and a bit selfish when it comes to his playing time, his performance, the way he plays et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, you, I, I can't imagine him saying that without having already discussed it with Ronaldo and between champions league. And, you know, obviously he's not going to play like the FA cup or anything like that, but there's a lot of matches. There's a lot of miles on that body. So I've got to think that Ronaldo as, as, as much as he always wants to be on the field and scoring, et cetera, et cetera, that he has to know at some point, he can't just play 50 games this season. And so I, I'd like to think, that as I said, Solskjaer has has said that they probably didn't have to talk about it because you kind of ha- yeah you, you have to because I mean <laughs> as we all know the manager doesn't make those decisions Ronaldo makes those decisions pretty much but but at least if they're on the same page you know uh, th- then yeah but well at-, at the same but at the same time what how, what does that look like in February or March if they're you know five points out of first place and they've now played you know Saturday Wednesday Saturday or something like that and now always saying, hey, we have this game against, you know, Southampton or whatever. Uh, we're not going to start you. And, and Ronaldo feels the need to play because, you know, they're trying to catch City or Liverpool or Chelsea or who's ever in first place. So the question is, it's easy enough for Ronaldo even today to say, yeah, that sounds good. But when it comes down to it, is he actually going to be able to, to have the discipline to not fight it when it comes down to that that moment? 
Yeah, we will see. Um, anyways, uh, like I said, we're going to get plenty of Ronaldo in the interview, so I'm going to leave it right there. Uh, although, Jared, uh, the rest of the domestic leagues, uh, a quick roundup, uh, a couple of highlights throughout the rest of Europe. Yeah, I mean, though, I did want to go back to Italy real quick. Napoli 2, Juventus 1, a come-from-behind victory uh, for Napoli. And, and I got to give a special tip of the cap to the, uh, to the game winner, Koulibaly, who had one hell of a week. He was down in Africa for international duty. He took, he had to take like several flights to get back to Italy. Uh, mm. You know, instead of waiting longer for a direct flight, he literally got off the plane after like two or three flights, went straight to training on Thursday and then was able to get back on the field uh, over the weekend and get a, a, a winner, I believe in the 86th minute of that match, which is, you know, you know, we talked about all these, stories about international break and, and teams trying to get back and players getting back or not being allowed to go, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And for Koulibaly to, to play internationally, to try and, you know, get his country in, in World Cup contention and then get back and, and score a winner is awesome. And it leaves Juventus in 16th place in the Serie A table. Dude, incredible. And yeah, by the way, with Koulibaly, just world-class center back. Uh, I actually, I prayed to my soccer gods for years that Arsenal could pick him up, but yeah, it looks like he is happy um, in Italy. And uh, yeah, what else, Jared? What else you got? We got two more. The big one in Germany was Bayern four, Leipzig one, mm. uh, you know, and, and this was a game that was actually probably closer than the score indicated. Leipzig stayed aggressive. You know, they, they followed their model. They, they tried playing with Bayern. And, and I'm not going to say the game was uh, was poorly officiated, but if you're the kind of person who wants to look at Bayern referees or, you know, the, the referees always favoring the big team, it was one of those days um, Leipzig really early on had, an, had a penalty shot for a potential handball. You know, again, these are 50-50 calls even with VAR, but they didn't get one their way. And then later on, Bayern got the benefit of a 50-50 penalty call their way. And then, of course, Bayern had the one where the guy was – onside by a fingertip and then Leipzig was offside by a fingertip, you know, just kind of one of those days where if you're going to beat Bayern, you know, you have to kind of have everything go your way and Leipzig didn't. And I know that, you know, uh, there's a little pressure there as they've had a poor start to the season and it doesn't get any easier as they face Man City in the Champions League on Wednesday. But, you know, just one of those, when we talk about football being a game of margins, I think this is the, the like kind of the quintessential uh, example, because again, it wasn't that the rest were poor. But on a different day, you know, a couple of the calls go differently and Leipzig possibly gets a result, a draw, or even all three points. Yeah. If you're Jesse Marsh, how are you feeling right now? Um, you know, I actually heard him interviewed after the game. He's, he's, he's remained positive. He, he thinks that, yeah. you know, he's, he's trying to do uh, – he's trying to change their style of play on the fly. And remember, this Leipzig team are, had already lost their best defender and their coach just before Marsh got there. And then the Sabitzer thing happened. So it's right. an adjustment. And I think that because he's moved through the system there and they know he's a quality coach, I think he has that leeway uh, to kind of get things done to try and um, improve the situation. And I think he's working with a bunch of new players to try and, you know, kind of change the way they've played a little bit. And I think that he ha because he has the backing, I think he still has confidence that he's going to be able to get it done. Um, and I, and I still have a fair amount of that confidence as well. I think they've all, again, they've had a really hard beginning of the season schedule wise. At some point they are going to get the home games against like Gruther Firth and, and like Armenia Bielefeld and he'll get wins in a row and, and it'll look a lot better than it does after having played, you know, Bayern and, and uh, you know, Munchen Godbach and all those teams so early on. Right. Yeah. And I got my fingers crossed for him. Cause yeah, I mean, like you said, this isn't like, you know, he's not a tier one coach that's come in from, you know, an outsider 
you know, into a you know, club like like a city or, or a Juventus where like they have to perform. They have to get the results or else they're on the hot seat straight away. This is like a tier two ish coach who's like come up through the ranks and they know him. They support him. And obviously, as an American, uh, you know, we got our fingers crossed for him. Yeah. Um, Anyways, Jared, uh, anything else for the domestic league? Yeah, last one. We got Atletico Madrid 2-1 on the road against Espanyol with a 90-plus-9 minute winner from Thomas Lamar. And, you know, this is just Atletico being Atletico, right? It's it's a team that they should be able to kind of beat comfortably, uh, you know, a a recently promoted team. Um, And they're they're leaving it late. They're leaving it as late as humanly possible, of course, as you can (laughs) imagine, as as I just said. Uh, And it's just – you know, it's, it's a team that I think is still obviously in contention to win La Liga this year. But at some point, they have to start making it easier on themselves. They, they This is not the first time this season they've yeah. scored a goal in stoppage time to rescue points or to get points. And it, it's just – it's not sustainable. You cannot keep doing that. And as much as we love them, as much as we love Simeone, and as much as after he's been there this long, he still has them playing their asses off and, and everything else. If they want to win the league this year, they need to actually just get their shit together. And maybe, I don't know, score like the 75th or 80th minute. Like, I'm not even saying. <laughs> like be up three nothing at halftime but you know you, you can get lucky a few times at this late in the game but you can't do it every week so uh you know a big win for them to, to keep pace early on but again it, it portends to a uh a losing strategy in the long run if they don't kind of sort it yeah what the hell happened in the game jared that got us almost 10 minutes of stoppage time i believe there were a couple injuries involved um and of course you know when you have that and of course you know eight nine ten subs the, the minutes do stack up but i believe it was injury related Okay. All right. And by the way, speaking of injuries, uh, I'm just going to throw a very quick side out in there um, about the the head injury thing and concussion substitutes. Uh, Most recently over the weekend, uh, one of my teams was playing uh, against uh, another team in the MLS Next League and um, the other team's player uh, sustained a head injury. We did the concussion sub and he was actually cleared by the athletic trainer. And so we just subbed the guy back on and all was good. And if we can do it at that level, I feel like everyone else can do it too, eh? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I was listening to a podcast, I think a couple of weeks ago, uh, with Steve Cangelosi, who is the play-by-play man for the Red Bulls. And he mentioned something about the head injury thing and how, you know, all season they have not seen it happen one time. And clearly, we have seen guys go down, hold their heads. Uh, and, and again, which is not to say that those guys are concussed, but it, it is staggered, it's staggering to me that, these injuries have happened. There's a rule put in place to, to properly, you know, deal with them. Yeah. And yet, whether it be a team thing, whether it be a referee thing, whether it be a league thing, I don't know where, you know, we can, you can chop up the blame in, in any one of a number of places. But for some reason, it just doesn't happen. And, you know, I was at the Red Bull DC United game on Saturday night, and there was at least two occasions in that game where someone went down and was clutching at the head area. Not that they specifically looked like head injuries, but like the ref didn't even stop the game until, you know, the ball was out of play or somebody played it out. And I thought we were like, at least, I thought we were at least at the point where if a guy went down holding his head, the ref would stop the game and, and at least take a look at it. But apparently that's not even happening anymore. Yeah, again, if we can do it at the youth soccer level, I feel like they can do it at the pro level. Um, it's but, it's hey, not that, complicated. That would, yeah, that, that would make too much sense, I think. Uh, well, anyways, um, yeah, going to transition now to our interview for today. Uh, my friend and former colleague um, who has very strong Portuguese roots uh, and, of course, never fails to let me hear it when uh, Ronaldo scores yet another penalty kick. Um, I try to steer him away from all the Portugal and Ronaldo talk, but he's just got the guy's ball so far deep down his throat that it's really hard to separate the two. Um, so here you have it, a very not boring interview uh, with a mostly decent guy, Nelson Abreu. 
Okay, and I'm joined now by a very special guest, probably my best and most important guest that I've ever had on the podcast, uh, someone who I've known for years now, uh, during which I've been uh, the most difficult colleague he's ever had to work with. Pretty much we're like <laughs> Bruno Fernandez and Ronaldo, literally just can't play together. Uh, also took a soccer program that he built and ran it into the ground. Uh, and I tried to invest in real estate with him, but apparently my money's no good to this guy. But despite all this, we're still friends. Happy to be joined now by Nelson Abreu. Welcome to the show, Nelson. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the lovely introduction. Um, yes, you were. I was Alex Sir Alex Ferguson, and you were the David Moyes of the Academy of the Holy Cross soccer team. Well, yeah, considering <laughs> what Moyes is doing now with West Ham, uh, I will take that as a compliment. Um, but yeah, super <laughs> excited to have you on the show. Uh, you know, my first question to you, Nelson, is that, you know, when you jumped the gun and bought your Ronaldo Manchester City jersey, uh, were you able to get a refund or is it just going straight into the donate pile or, or what'd you do with that? No, Manchester City has enough money where I would never invest in a jersey. And um, at my age of 40, I think I'm past those days of wearing jerseys. Even if it is for an amazing um, player, the best player in the world, the best goal scorer ever, um, Ronaldo. But no. Um, now my two boys, on the other hand, I will be investing in jerseys for them. But of course, for United. So, <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, we're just going to get straight into it then. Uh, obviously, as the traveling supporters can hear, uh, Mr. Abreu is uh, a huge Ronaldo supporter. All those penalties that he scores and, and just bo you know boosting his goal total, uh, obviously super supportive of that. Um, but, but yeah, no, in all seriousness, uh, obviously, Nelson, all the guests that I've had on, you know, they have some sort of like roots. You know, I've had an Argentinian guy, a Brazilian guy. Uh, and, and yeah, I wanted to hear more about your, your Portuguese roots. So can can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, the background of your Portuguese roots? Oh, sure thing. Now, you did mention a Brazilian person. And, um, you know, I'm a big believer since we did colonize Brazil. We do take mm. credit for their World Cup and um, success as well um, since it really wow. just came from Yeah, do you get kickbacks for that? Or do you put like half a star on your jersey for that? It, you know, we put them on the inside of the shirt where no one can see them. But we still wear them proudly. <laughs> Um, just we just don't want to promote it too much. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, I am Portuguese American. Um, my parents came over when they were super young. So, of course, they brought the cultural um, aspect of growing up Portuguese. So, yeah, um, I was through and through 100 percent Portuguese blood. And my parents came over young and kind of, you know, built a life for them here as um, some of your other uh, guests have talked about. So, of course, with that came the love and passion for soccer. Um, or if, when people are trying to impress other people, they can say football. Um, mm -hmm. And I just kind of grew that passion. Um, you know, as young as eight, nine years old, I can remember playing. Um, I was always the chubby kid on the team. Um, mm. My biggest claim to fame was that my dad was the one that was picking up um, all of my teammates to go. I played on a um, all Latino team. Um, so a lot of the parents didn't make it to the game. So my dad was the one that used to drive down um, to Glenmont and pick up five or six guys so that we could actually have a, a team and field the team that day. So oh, I um, love that. So, and by the so, way, you know, I, I can empathize with you on the chubby thing because uh, I was there as well. Although, uh, you know, you said you're 40, you don't look a day over 30 uh, and, and you're, you're fitter than, uh, you know, than I was 10 years ago. I, I, I've aged terribly. Um, so good on you for that. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, you know, t tell me more about like your, your dad's uh, perspective on on football and obviously, you know, his love sort of was imbued to you. And then, uh, you know, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and, and a question that I've asked, you know, to my other guests, you know, 
how what being a first generation kid and you know having that that love kind of passed down uh to you what was sort of like his perspective on american soccer like did he know about anything going into it was he sort of like well you're portuguese so you're going to automatically know more about the game or like use that as like a stepping stone in the game of football etc cetera, etc cetera. what what was your your uh, family's approach on that yeah, so really my dad let me do my own thing and let me kind of feel it out. Uh, my dad was a huge fan of Sporting Clube de Portugal, um, probably the best developmental um, European team. The stars such as Ronaldo and Figo and all those mm. guys through, came through their development program. Um, and my dad just let me do my own thing. He just kind of allowed me to play um, for fun when I was younger. I was not one of those kids that was – jumping from one team to the next team, trying to get that college scholarship. That just wasn't on my dad's radar. Um, And it was just through a family friend that I just started playing. And then, you know, of course, my dad, you know, pushed me in that direction, let me do my own thing. But he also kind of inspired, um, you know, took me to do some activities. So, for example, um, the golden generation, you know, when they won the uh, youth championship in 89 and 91, I was actually – in um, Lisbon, in that stadium, when that golden generation won the 91 um, World Cup. Oh, oh really? Oh, my goodness. That's yeah. so cool. So you were, what, 10, 11 years old? Yeah, 10 years old. And I was there in the stands, and my dad thought that was something neat for me to go do. So we went to go do that, and that was my earliest memory of ever watching soccer. Um, yeah, tell me more about that. I mean, yeah. what, do you remember, like, you know like certain moments in the game or just kind of like the feeling that you had when you're in the stadium yeah more more the feeling you know at that time you know when you're 10 years old you don't really appreciate it but it was in Mm. portugal so we were the host nation i still have my scarf that i donned in the stadium and uh, we beat brazil four to two on penalty kicks but um yeah that was our first great team you know our best player growing when i was so young was Eusebio, who was not really Portuguese. He was, you know, the Pepe of that time um, mm. that we just kind of adopted um, from Africa. But, you know, I got to see Hui Costa, Luis Figo, who eventually became, you know, player of the year um, and the best player in the world during his time and then had some success at Real Madrid. But well, like, also a trader, people, yeah. Also yeah. a trader, but fantastic player. Yeah, so I got to see all those guys playing. That was my first memory. And other than that, it was just an opportunity for me to spend time with my dad. Um my dad was super involved and, you know, my dad was quite a bit older than most of the other fathers. So he wasn't out there knocking the, the ball around with me or anything like that. But he was definitely the one that helped kind of grow the passion. And, um, you know, as far as what he thought soccer was here, it was hilarious because he came over to work at the Portuguese embassy um, and they were just for fun, um, you know, gambling. And of course, they, you know, had a, a pool for football, F-O-O-T-B-A-L-L. So there he is, and he's working at the embassy, and he's filling it out. And so he's filling out the scores, and it's like Washington Redskins 3, Dallas Cowboys 2, New York Giants (laughs) 1, Philadelphia Eagles 0. And he turns it in, and the guys are just laughing at him, like, oh, you immigrant. Like, you don't know what this, what, what's going on in this country. That's and he so had to kind of learn what F-O-O-T-B-A-L-L was. So, um, But eventually, you know, they ingrained. And, you know, I don't know that he ever, like, you know, joined the Cosmos or was watching any of the soccer professional here. Um, right. but, but always was, you know, keeping up with, you know, Benfica and Porto and Sporting. Um, from afar and then of course with the national national team yeah and and by the way you mentioned the the golden generation I mean how many golden generations do you guys get aren't they in a golden generation now wasn't there a golden generation with like Nani and a younger Ronaldo like how many of these golden generations do you guys get 
Yeah, I guess, you know, I think we're at the point now we're not really calling this group the golden generation as much mm. just because I think it's a sign of respect. You know, like Belgium, if they keep doing this and keep producing players like they have right now, I think their next group, they're just going to be respected as a, a soccer, you know, power nation, right? So, like, you know, we caught the end of, like, Figo where they, you know, transitioned over and that last Euro is when we lost to Greece and Ronaldo came off the bench. And, of course, I turned to the person next to me. Lost said, to them oh, twice, by the way. Okay, let's just pace yourself yeah, yeah. right there. And, uh, you know. <laughs> and then, so, you know, I think we transitioned to that Nani, the Kadejma group. And then, you know, of course, Ronaldo became the best out of all of them. Um, but, you know, I think hopefully we're starting to get respected, um, you know. You like to make the joke, same old boring Portugal. I've received that text, I think, after 90% of the matches they've played. Yeah, I mean, um, I got nothing else. Sorry. Yeah, but it's okay. You know, at least you're consistent. Um, <laughs> it makes the um, retaliation on my part a little bit easier. So, mm. you know, I, I don't think we're in a golden generation. I think this is now Portugal is one of the powers. And I guess, you know, we don't get the respect. And I think we're going to go into that a little bit. Um, that some of the other nations and, you know, yes, we do play a certain brand of soccer. Um, but, you know, I can also retort that, you know, we get bashed for, you know, packing it in and kind of playing the Jose Mourinho style of mm. parking the bus and then just asking Ronaldo to come up with a PK um, by the end of the game. But, you know, I, I think we're going. And I think um, this next group of young players that are coming in as we transition from Ronaldo, um, you know, maybe he's just going to hopefully become a nine soon and just play up top because we've never had a striker. Mm. Um, and then we can let Bruno Fernandes and Diogo Jota and João Felix and, you know, holding it down in the back with Ruben Diaz. I, I, you know, I think we're going to be in good shape. Yeah, maybe not a golden generation, but definitely like a golden time, right? Because as you just said, I mean, you actually have a great lineup top to bottom, right? I mean, you've, you've just won Euro, you know, five years ago. I know that seems like a long time, but still, hey, you can't take away that international trophy. I think you're very strong. You got, you know, out of that that group of death, uh, et cetera. And, um, and yeah, I don't know if you saw, but the latest UEFA coefficients have uh, the Portuguese league uh, as actually one of the top five leagues in Europe. Yeah, and we're going to keep growing. I think, um, you know, the, the league in Portugal, you know, back in the day, Benfica, when Eusebio was there, we were known as another AC Milan, another Juventus, another Real Madrid. But other than that, the Portugal League's part of the problem is we take players, we develop them, though we sell them. So our domestic mm. league was never really developing players. Um, it wasn't like Spain. It wasn't like Italy. It wasn't like England. Um, so we didn't have that, you know, from top to bottom. We always had a star or two or a couple of players that were playing at Real or whatever that kind of led us. But I think Ronaldo, and I think um, once you get a great player like Ronaldo, it kind of fuels the nation to kind of really invest in the talent. And I mm -hmm. think we're at the point now where we have, you know, five or six players that, you know, can be known as like, you know, top three in the position, in any given position on any other team. So I think we're set up to succeed. I think um, the story has yet to be told on Fernando Santos and, the way he plays, because I don't think I think we're having a, a culture clash, right? The mm. pack it in and expect Ronaldo to pull something out of his rear end is leaving. Now, I think Bruno wants to play a certain way. Jota wants to play a certain way. Felix wants to play a certain way. And I just don't know whether Santos is going to be able to manage this team the way we need it um, to play that better attacking style soccer. 
Well, well right. And I obviously, it. yeah, I alluded to it at, at, at the beginning, you know, kind of half joking, but also half serious. I mean, you have to be a little bit concerned about the way these guys are going to play together, especially those two. I mean, an incredible playmaker like a Bruno Fernandez, and then obviously the, the legend that is Ronaldo, but it just doesn't seem like, like it's, it's trying to put a square peg in a round hole almost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's why I talk about if, if Ronaldo can develop and become just a pure striker, a pure number nine, Lewandowski or someone like that, where now Bruno is kind of feeding into him, I think we can get it going. But the Mm. problem is, is when we have that center piece out on the flanks, absorbing the ball. And I know I agree with you. He holds on to it too long and thinks he is what he used to be. But if he comes a pure goal striker and that's all we ask of him and he goes up top, I think that midfield can play underneath him. I think that, you know, if Renato Sanchez, um, who I believe is the reason why we won that Euros um, back in 2016 with his play. Um, and again, he had another great Euros. I, I guess the guy just doesn't want to play club soccer. He just wants to show up for Euros, which is fine by <laughs> me as a supporter. But I think allowing these guys to play underneath Ronaldo, let him be that centerpiece, you know, the aging old man who's going to put it in the back of the net or always put a PK in, although he did miss one recently. Um, but that was going to be my next question. Yeah. I, well, and I'm not going to, you know, let you off the hook here. You know, it, as I said to Jared, my co-host, it was, you know, as if the milkman missed his delivery, as if the, the sun didn't rise in the east. Ronaldo missed a penalty kick. I know, but how beautiful was the next two and how wonderful <laughs> was it, right? Like, no, I'll, I'll give him props for that. I mean, the dude misses from, from 12 yards out. Uh, it was just like a total shocker. Uh, and then, yeah, just turns around and scores like two of the, like, the great goals in the last year. Right, and, and I think – you and I had this conversation about does he get as much credit for the PKs, right? And in the Euros, with the amount of PKs that he had to score, um, the Euros where he was the uh, winner of the Golden Boot, I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there again. Um, but to me, I, I, I give him credit for the, the penalty kicks, especially when he's the one creating them, right? Um, how many PKs were missed in that tournament? Especially in Euro, as, yes, as you're right. Down, right? How many of the, you know, would England uh, wanted someone take him taking the PKs from him? Absolutely. Um, so I just understand. I, you know, I give him credit. And I know I'm a homer. And again, my national pride can sometimes get in the way of reason. Um, but I do think he's the best goal scorer ever to be. Um, I think he's better in the air than Messi, and he's developing that even more. Yeah, no shit. I don't think guys. Messi's ever headed a ball in his life. No, he's never. And, but you know what? <laughs> But And I know on your first podcast, you said you're not going to be the podcast that goes into who's better, Messi or Ronaldo. Mm. But I also do need, you know, we can't judge Ronaldo in a vacuum, right? If Ronaldo was playing with Iniesta and Xavi, you tell me Ronaldo wouldn't have developed into a different player than he is now? It's possible, yeah. But, yeah. but he is, look, I'll, I'll give him proper respects, give him all the credit he deserves. They're basically in every category, you know, I'm going to give Messi a 10 out of 10, but there's like one or two categories where he's legit like a five out of 10 or like a four out of 10. Whereas Ronaldo is like nine and a half out of 10 in everything. Right. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And he's got, he's got all the tools. He is incredible uh, in, in so many different ways. And look, you you somehow set the trap and I stepped right into it. I'm I'm actually uh, slurping up Cristiano Ronaldo right now, which is nauseating to me. So I'm not going to spend too much more time on him. And I do want to hear about you, but but real quick to tie the loop on this Portugal and, and Ronaldo narrative here. So you're feeling pretty good about World Cup 2022 in Qatar next year. 
My big question, though, is what about life after Ronaldo? What about after that? Right. It, obviously, he's a huge part of the identity of that country and it's and it's soccer. Uh, you know, you have guys like Andre Silva, like waiting in the wings. He, he's like a very, very good number nine. Right. But he has to live in the shadow here. Look at what like Germany did, where, um, you know, it, whether you think it was the right move or not, you know, removing some of those veterans from the program so the younger guys can be given that space and time to grow or whatever. And, and you just wonder, like, you know, has the uh, growth been stunted a little bit because they are reliant on some of those old guys, Pepe included, right? I mean, younger center backs who could have right. gotten some of those opportunities, but because they're reliant on these middle-aged men, uh, you know, and, and again, I'm not taking too much away from them. They're still serviceable. Ronaldo's still scoring tons of goals. Anyway, sorry, my long-winded way of asking, like, how do you see life after Ronaldo? Um, and will these younger players be able to step up into the national team? Yeah. So I don't, I don't see it going well <laughs> in a way yeah. <laughs> because I don't know how they're going to push Ronaldo out. Like I think Pepe, although I love the way he played in the last Euros, I, you know, Pepe to me was like a, a wild card. It was like, he was like one second away from a horrible red card. Mm. Um, but, but know. he didn't. And I, I was shocked yeah. by that too. I mean, and that's the, the bar, that's the measurement of success for Pepe, whether he gets sent off or not. And he didn't. So he did well. <laughs> right. So I think Ronaldo, they're going to let him play as long as he wants. Um, I think it's wonderful that he got that record, the all-time leading goal scorer, because I think that was on his to-do list. And, you know, I just think he's going to become a target striker up there, and he's going to have to develop into that. Um, hopefully he stops demanding to take the, the free kicks. Um, and, you know, thank He's God got, he was, like, the actual, like, worst free kick percentage. He <laughs> and and I've, heard this, I've heard this narrative before, the, the idea that, like, you're almost you almost do a disservice when you do score like a worldly free kick like early on in your career because then it just follows you forever and then everyone just defers to you to take those free kicks and even though you just keep missing and missing and missing like Marcus Rashford Ronaldo hit that one many years ago like in the friendly or whatever but but because they scored that one free kick goal like everyone just kind of like defers to them forever. Uh Oh, you're absolutely right. And us growing up in club soccer, it was the same thing with us, right? The hotshot guy on the team who always stepped up and you wouldn't dare take the ball away from him. What, but, you know, someone's going to have to stand up to him eventually and say, you know what? You know, look back to the, the goal we scored against France. You know, that all started from a free kick that hit the post, right? Mm. If Ronaldo's taking that free kick, it's not hitting the post and we're not scoring that goal eventually. But, right. but back to your original point, uh, question, I do think that we're going to have to eventually come to terms with hoping that he accepts just being a target striker, number nine. And yeah, is it going to suck for the guys that are coming in behind? Absolutely. But I just don't know how you can push someone like him out. You know what I mean? Arguably one of the best players in the world, you know, probably our best Portuguese player in the world. He's going to play as long as he wants and we're going to let him. Um, and then hopefully he just kind of ages gracefully. But I do think one of the things we don't give Ronaldo enough credit for, we see him as a pretty boy, but his work ethic, that's oh, never yeah, been doubted, yeah. right? Yeah. And if he does turn himself and does like learn to be that number nine, that target, then we're going to be okay. I don't think we're at, like Germany, right? Germany is historically, I'd say, you know, I'd put them right there at the top as far as development. They don't mind pushing someone out and the public accepts it. It's not going to go as well for Portugal if they ever try to push Ronaldo out. Not until he starts, you know, not scoring goals. Um, yeah, it's a good shout. So, uh, right. So, I mean, you, you don't see you see him actually trying to continue playing after 2022. Oh, absolutely. I so think he'll, he, Euro 2024. 
Yeah, I think Euro 24. Like 40. You know, granted, he's slowed down, right? He can't take people on anymore. He can't play in space anymore. But look at the Ireland game. Who else would you rather have in the box on the world on the other end of a cross, right? Mm. So, and fair play. He, he's almost he's like the Madonna of international football. I mean, the guy like, you know, just keeps reinventing himself and adjusting his game based on the demands of, of his environment and, and himself, his age. So, yeah, he, he might be able to do it. Right. And he never needed to use steroids in order to grow like some other people in Argentina. Wow. Okay. I'm not even going to touch that one. Uh, I'm not going to let you trap me on that one, Nelson. Um, I I do want to make it more about you. Um, So I I appreciate all the insight on that, obviously. But but let's get back back to you and and your uh, your heralded uh, career as a young footballer. Um, Yeah. Tell me more about uh, growing up in the youth soccer game. And and I do want to transition it also to your your coaching career, because obviously your love for the game didn't end as a player. uh, But then you transitioned into into coaching so yeah br- bring us back to i don't know maybe the the young nelson the high school nelson yeah so i um grew up in montgomery county um live live in the house i grew up in right now so in silver spring maryland um and i grew up playing for the club probably doesn't exist anymore we were called the wheaton wolves um and it was just really a ragtag group of guys but it was wonderful so we played together you know all through middle school probably broke up freshman year high school sophomore year but again we were a bunch of hispanic guys um we had two kids that were not hispanic um one of them was um this redheaded white kid who was great his dad was one of the managers as well and we used to call him rojo which I guess is the equivalent of calling someone ginger in English. Yeah. Um, how do you, and, how do you say fire crotch in Portuguese? <laughs> and then we had another guy who was an Asian guy. Um, we used to call him Wu-Tang, um, which again oh, is Lord. not appropriate um, right. nowadays, but that's what we used to call him. So it was a bunch of Spanish guys. Everyone thought I was Hispanic. So I kind of got lumped in and everybody would just t- try to speak Spanish to me. And I'd look at them funny um, until they realized I was Portuguese and just because I was tanned. And yeah, did they just Spanish. assume like olive skin, dude, he probably speaks Spanish, right? And there you go. And then they wonder why I wouldn't uh, you know, pass them the ball in the field. And they eventually figured it out that they weren't <laughs> speaking the right language. So I grew up. I was not very good at all. Again, I was chubby all through middle school. I was horrible. Um, and then I can't really remember when it happened or why it happened, but in high school, you know, I was decent enough to make the team, uh, my sophomore year, my freshman year, I played on the JV cause we had an absolutely amazing team my freshman year. Um, but we never really did much. I went to John F. Kennedy high school. We weren't really a powerhouse of sports. Um, you know, there's one or two teams that we look forward to beating and then everybody else, but through high school, you know, I made like the, you know, the all-star teams for the high school. I made all County. Um, and then I went to Maryland and then, you know, Sasha made the worst decision he's ever made in his coaching career. He never returned my uh, voicemail that I left him asking him when I could walk on. Wow. Um, What a missed opportunity. Yeah. And then, you know, four years later, Maryland won their first national championship with him. So I guess he kind of figured it out over the years, (laughs) but by that time I had already turned my back on him. So, you know what, deal with it, Sasha. Um, Mm. So, you know, but I'll pass that message along to him. Thank you. Um, But, you know, my real passion really just turned into coaching. I think the I played club my freshman year. I played for a club team, Um, you know, as a freshman in college, I was playing um, with a bunch of guys that were still in high school. And that was fun. 
Um, my oh, so senior... not the Maryland club team itself, but like a, a, another club team. Yeah. So I wasn't playing Maryland club just cause I had my coaching commitments by then. Um, so I just played intramural at Maryland cause it was just later in the night and easier for me. Mm. Um, so I never even went out for the club team, but like, you know, my greatest accomplishment as a player is a, you know, when I was a senior in high school, we actually, a couple buddies and I kind of put a team together, um, ran our own tryouts, found our own coach. Um, and we actually went to the state cup finals, you know, back then the state cup was a little bit bigger of a deal than it is now. Wow. Um, but we went to the state cup finals and lost, I think it was to the Washington diplomats who were a bunch of college kids, but we lost one nil in the finals. Um, so that's the most I ever accomplished at the club level. Um, and then at the high school level, you know, I was good enough to be one of the best players on the team. Um, but when I, by the time my senior year, I was not going to choose my college based on soccer. I was going to choose it based on being close to family. Um, yeah. And, and that's a, just a quick side out on that. That's a huge decision that, you know, a lot of players today have to face, uh, especially, you know, the last couple of years I've been coaching like U18, U19 boys. Right. And, and it becomes this, this thing where almost like a fetishization of playing in college, right. Even if it's like the lowest D3 team possible, just to say that you play, you know, college soccer, but at what cost at the expense of not getting into the school, not going to the school that you want or them not having the major that you want or the social environment da 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 da, you know, and it's, it's, it's become a much more difficult, you know, question to answer, you know, guidance to give to these young players who, uh, you know, they, they prioritize, they, they orient their decision around the college soccer thing as opposed to the school and then fit soccer in later. And, and that's absolutely right. Like, you know, my wife played, she played division one college soccer at Monmouth in, in New Jersey and she hated it. She loved the school. She loved her teammates, but she had the worst experience of her life um, playing for a coach. And, you know, I, I just wasn't willing to make that sacrifice. You know, I will, you know, I could have gone into play somewhere, but, you know, to me, family came first and financially, you know what, um, I am where I am right now and own my own house and, you know, have people paying my mortgage on rental properties because yes, I decided. And I'm still to, trying to get in on that, by the way. So. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk to that. will be on the next podcast <laughs> when you start up your business podcast, buddy. Um, <laughs> so to me, it just it wasn't worth me going out. And again, you've coached enough kids where you're saying, you know, yes, anybody can play anywhere. Like, just because you want to play college soccer, that's fine. But mm. are you going to sacrifice to go play somewhere? Um, and is it going to be worth it to you in the long run? You know, what's three or four more years of playing soccer? If it's going to put you in an environment where you're either farther away from home or not in, you know, socially the right environment or your major isn't the right one. Because, you know, how many kids do we really coach that are going to wind up going to play professionally? You know, right. It's exactly. not. So what, where's your priority? And that's a conversation that you and I have had, both had with a bunch of parents. So. Yeah. And, and I tell my players, I had the absolute 100 best experience of my life playing club soccer, very low pressure. Very, you know, uh, it, you know, it wasn't a full time job like, you know, the, these these other athletes uh, have, you know, while they're also, you know, doing the academic thing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, and I had the best experience of my life, best four years of my life, all, all that good stuff. Um, but but anyways, I want to bring it back, actually, Nelson, to a comment that you made before uh, about the coaching thing. And again, you've been so gracious with your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, and we'll probably close out on on this. Um, but you said you were you were starting your coaching career off uh, when you were actually in college or even as early as a senior in high school. So I was actually a junior in high school when I was coaching my first team. 
Um, it was an MSI classic, which is kind of the, um, you know, in other areas of the States, we'd probably call it the, you know, the, the rec league or the club league. So mm. it was super low level. You know, one of my best friends, it was one of those deals where the parents were coaching and then they got me and my best friend to just kind of take over practices. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. So they were called the MSI Rapids. Um, you know, again, we were just, you know, uh, your team names have been great throughout your history. Wolves, Rapids, man. <laughs> Thank you. So, so I coached it and I, I loved it. I fell in love with it. So I was a junior in high school, did it my senior year and kept going for my freshman year. And then I got connected. Um, I had a guy come out and be a trainer for my classic team. Um, and he's kind of a big wig in the air. He's kind of the, uh, the Morgan Wooten of women's soccer in the area, Jim Bruno, mm. um, coaches at Good Council High School, just phenomenal program. He's just turned 74 years old and he's still going strong. Um, he's got the got, energy of a 44-year-old. Th- there you go. And, he, you know, I just got connected with him and he kind of took me under his wing. Um, he would call me his other son and I call him my second father. And um, I got connected with him through good counsel and absolutely loved it and kind of started getting a feel for the more competitive aspect of coaching and then went over to the MSC, the uh, premier side of MSI Classic, um, and just fell in love with it. And it basically ran my weekends and ran my after school. I was basically uh, living the dream like you, um, except for I I did have to wake up earlier than eight o'clock in the morning every day. Oh, that sounds brutal. Um, yeah. So t- tell me, uh, yeah, tell me more about, uh, and sorry, uh, we just had, uh, Brooke say hello to the podcast. <laughs> Brooke hi, Brooke. just walked in. Nelson says hi. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're an amateur podcast. There's a reason we call it the, uh, the farmers, farmers league <laughs> podcast here. Um, low production value, but anyways, um, yeah, t- tell me, and again, to close the loop here. Uh, so, so tell me about that phase of, of your coaching career, obviously, and don't be modest. Okay. Mr. Coach of the year, uh, th- to all the listeners who don't know the, the Washington Catholic, uh, athletic conference, the WCAC, one of the top, uh, not just soccer, but, but just athletic conferences in the country, uh, the schools that you and I have both coached at. Uh, I've told, you know, I've talked to the pod and other guests about, you know, coaching at DeMatha, my time there. Obviously, you're talking about good counsel, one of the perennial powerhouses, uh, not just in, in, in soccer, but, but many other sports. Um, and, and yeah, you, you know, you spent how many years uh, coaching uh, as the head coach of Holy Cross? And how many of those years were you the uh, actual coach of the year? Okay, so yes, so what I said, don't be modest, my friend. Uh, all right, so f- my time at the council eventually, I get a phone call um, from the principal at the time at Holy Cross, and they basically said, "Hey, are you ready to come over here and uh, run your own program?" Um, and good council and Holy Cross, um, the rivalry you can throw in mm. any two derbies out there you want, any two teams, um, but they were basically rivals. Good council was a more successful one, and. Holy Cross was an all-girls school who just, um, you know, tried hard and always gave good counsel a hard time. So it was kind of hard for me to go to the enemy. Um, but yeah. eventually I went over to good counsel. I coached there, I think, about six or seven years. So I went to Holy Cross, coached there for six or seven years, and just had a ball. I loved it. Um, you know, was able to bring in the right players. And my first year there, I had the player of the year um, in the WCAC. And, Yes, I was coach of the year in that year, um, and I think I won it another time. So in six or seven years, I think I got it twice, and um, the local paper, the Gazette, made me the coach of the year too. So we were at the point where we were finishing in the top three. Um, my goal was always to be the best um, all-girls school in the WCAC, 
um, and in the area too, to kind of help with uh, bringing kids in. Um, and I absolutely loved it. I just great relationships. And, you know, you have to love high school soccer in order to coach high school soccer. Um, I think if you did um, what the hourly pay is based on your travel and the amount of time you're spending and everything like that, you would just kick yourself um, for coaching a high school team. <laughs> um, but there's other aspects of it that you and I know of seeing the kids in the hallway, them playing their best friends that they play club with on another high school team and representing the high school. Um, so I did that for about seven years and then um, took an administrative job at the school. So I had to step down from the coaching. Um, but, you know, we had a nice little program going and then, you know, eventually um, had to kind of move on to the next chapter in my life and then stop coaching club from there as well. Um, at the club level, you know, did some nice things. I coached at Bethesda, I coached at Potomac, and of course at MSC. Um, and you know, you know, some couple nice runs in the state cup and everything like that. But I was really the coach that you played for, and that I developed the players, and then they would move on to the top team in the area. Um, I wasn't the one that was coaching, so I never really had enough of uh, the jerk in me in order to inspire kids. Um, I think. <laughs> It's a lot easier to um, use the stick rather than the carrot when it comes to coaching. Um, right. And I always try to use the carrot. And I think that kind of, um, yeah, led me to help kids to love the game and appreciate the game, but not necessarily, um, you know, win state cups and that kind of thing. Well, well right. And it, it takes a very, uh, let's just say, unique attitude and approach, you know, to be cutthroat uh, like that, to take a team to that level, to achieve those types of things. And, yeah, the, the player developers like like yourself, they don't get all the glory. You know, they brought no one knows their name or whatever. But uh, the, those kids appreciate what you did for them. Uh, and, and, you know, you form those relationships with them and you stay in touch with them. Uh, and, and yeah, it, it was all worth it. I'm sure you look back on your coaching career fondly. I know you're you're obviously done now. Bigger, better things, uh, you know, uh, family and, and, uh, and your job and all that great stuff. Uh, but I would say you look back at your coaching career fondly. Yeah, absolutely. And especially the relationships. I wouldn't be where I am in my life. And some of my best friends um, are, you know, people I've played with. Some of my best friends are, you know, parents that I coach their kids. And, you know, there's still kids that I run into nowadays that, you know, want to chop it up over this team and that team. And actually, you know, coaching allowed me to find my wife. Um, my wife and I were on the same coaching staff when we were at Holy Cross. And we after I stopped coaching there, we started dating. Um, you coached with my sister-in-law. Um, who we haven't bashed England yet, which um, makes me a little sad. So, you know, um, I, we'll, do, I we'll do that next time, uh, but we need to do that for sure. And, and then okay. I can have her on uh, to rebut. Okay, wonderful. So, um, so yeah, so a lot of my important, most important, some of my biggest accomplishments and some of the things I'm most proud of came directly from coaching. And that's why I love the game. And eventually, you know, I have a two and a half year old and an eight month old at home. So as soon as the boys get old enough, I'll have to have that dilemma with um, how competitive I want them to be and whether I want to coach them. Um, and so that'll be my next team. But, um, you know, just kind of, you know, I get hit up every once in a while to do a training session. And I know you've tried to get me to come train with your company, too, back in the day. Mm. Um, but, you know, just the time rise right now, it just doesn't fit. But, you know, who knows down the line? Um, I'll, I'm sure I'll get back into it in some fashion. Yeah, who knows? Uh, we will see. Uh, and, and yeah, again, uh, Nelson, you've been so gracious with your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, so before you get fired, uh, I'm going to let you get back to your job here. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much for, for joining us. Um, anything to say to the traveling supporters before we sign off? 
Nothing. I appreciate. Thank you for the opportunity to be on. I hope I didn't bore anyone and, um, you know, go Portugal and, you know, we'll, we'll see in this next World Cup. I think, you know, the winter in Qatar, we, you know, don't worry about Portugal. They'll qualify. We're not going to overextend ourselves. We're never going to win the group, uh, which then puts us in the group of death every single tournament, it seems. Oh, um, here we but go. That's you okay. know, I was giving you the chance to say goodbye and, <laughs> you know, tie it up and put a nice little bow on the interview, and then you have to go and open up that thing again. <laughs> Well, it'll be for the next podcast, but don't worry. Um, I look forward to it and I appreciate um, you having me on and I've, I've loved listening. Um, I'm glad they're not two hours long. I gave you a hard time for that first one. You know, oh, I no. got two, two, two kids at home. I can't sit down for a two hour podcast, but um, I love what you're doing and I appreciate you having me on. And of course, I appreciate having you in my life as a friend, buddy. And uh, if there's anything you need, I'd love to come back on. Oh, and I appreciate having you in my life as well. We'll we'll end it on a nice, warm, fuzzy note like that. Uh, Cheers, Nelson. Uh, Take care, buddy. All right. Take care. All the best, bud. Okay. Bye. Bye. Will you stop talking about tennis players and stupid Hollywood actors, Phil? And we're back. All right. Let's do a couple of segments here, Jared. Of course, we're going to kick it off with how we feel about being Newcastle and Arsenal supporters today. Uh, I will let you go first. We kind of alluded. Obviously, you guys got Ronaldo uh, in his return uh, to the Premier League in Manchester United. But uh, but yeah, how are you feeling about being a Newcastle supporter today? Uh, you know, generally speaking, not great. Uh, you know, it is what it is. It's not like you ever go into uh, Old Trafford expecting a result. Uh, and, and to be fair, they played better than I kind of expected they would. Uh, they suffered the early um, the early goal, kept it at one nothing until half. Got actually a goal in the second half to give you a, a, like a, a sliver, maybe a, a small sliver of hope. Uh, but you know, backup goalie who obviously did not cover himself in glory as previously discussed. And again, the last two goals laid on obviously a banger from Fernandes and and you know the the late goal by, I guess, Lingard when the team was dead and tired. Uh, I, I would say the, the thing that bothered me most is how tired the team looked after an international break. And I don't know if you know this, but Newcastle United is not necessarily filled with uh, a bunch of international starters um, mm. where all their team was gone on international duty. A few guys here and there, but it was a little disconcerting to see the team so obviously gassed late in the game when they haven't had a match in a couple weeks. But again, you're never going to get the result there, and, and the scoreline probably is a little unflattering, but uh, it's it's about what ex- what was expected. So, you know, just the normal, not great level. Well, yeah, and, you know, the, the only bone that I have to pick with, with your stance there, Jared, is is that you have not followed the advice of our resident Brazilian, uh, one of our previous guests, Renato Macedo, who said, uh, you English-speaking Americans just say the names the way that you would in English. And Fernandes, how do you say it? It's, it's like Fernandes. It's not a Fernandez. It's like a Fernandes with like a... D-C-S-H something or other, according to the Euro podcast I listened to this summer. Ah, I see. I see. But again, according to our guest, uh, just say Fernandez, okay? You, you know, you're not Portuguese. You wouldn't say, uh, you know, I was having having lunch and I ate a croissant, okay? I mean, I mean, if that's – when it comes to a name, if that's the way the person pronounces their own name, I don't see any reason to disagree with them. Oh, okay. Well, we'll, we'll have to uh, discuss that a little <laughs> bit more later. Um, well, anyways, uh, how do I feel about being a, an Arsenal supporter today? 
obviously fantastic. You know, an incredible 1-0 win over 19th place uh, Norwich. Uh, obviously, we've completely turned the boat around. And, uh, yeah, we're going to win the league this year and the FA Cup and, and all that stuff. Um, so we'll just, yeah, we'll leave it at that. No, uh, but, but, yeah, no, I look, I, again, like I said, I'm, I'm Arteta in still, uh, almost like an in-minus-ish, uh, kind of like, you know, we've discussed with Greg Berhalter, with the U.S. men's national team, et cetera. Um, w- was it a great performance? No, but we it was better and we had chances. Uh, and and we did get to see, you know, most of, you know, the ideal starting 11. Still missing a couple of guys. Party obviously came on late, which, by the way, when he did, uh, we did have a bit of a party because uh, we finally got to switch to the 4-3-3, which I think Arteta has said from the beginning that he wants to implement with this group. He just never had the pieces, not enough time to work with them. Um, but, yeah, if we can get that particular starting line of Obama Yang comfortable in that nine position, right, if we can – get the guys into the 4-3-3. Those two center backs, Gabriel and Ben White, I thought they worked really well uh, together. And, and Ramsdale was fine. Um, yeah, we, I don't know. I, we, we could turn this thing around and, and the future could be a bit brighter. Uh, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good, Jared, about being an Arsenal supporter. Yeah, today. I mean, whenever you can get a win over somebody higher in the table than you, it's always a good day. <laughs> That's right. We are not last. Thank you. Goodness. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, next segment, own goal of the day. Uh, I'll kick it off. Uh, mine is for the Washington Spirit uh, in our own American uh, Domestic League for the women's game. Um, they've had to forfeit a game against the OL Reign. Uh, it will go down in the books as 3-0. And the reason for them having to actually forfeit a game in the league uh, is because there were multiple, not just one, but multiple uh, COVID protocol violations the league is staying mum uh the team has only released a statement through by the way another part of the own goal here uh their team president who is none other than ben fucking olsen who has as far as i know never had any experience in the women's game has never had any experience uh at that level of the front office but yeah for some reason it makes perfect sense you know to to, to make him the team president now um but yeah the washington spirit have forfeited a game due to covid violations uh yeah, and yeah ben olsen put out a, a, a some statement saying uh you know we're really disappointed with this but we accept it yes we broke the rules but the league's not saying shit about who it was what they did etc well there, there's a lot to unpack here right because obviously this is the first forfeit we've we've seen at this level and last week, the Washington Spirit had their game against Portland, I believe, postponed because they had a COVID outbreak within the team. And yeah. now a week later, now they're forfeiting a game. And uh, several Thorns players, I believe, on Twitter, including Christy Sinclair, uh, obviously their, their leader on the pitch, uh, have said, well, wait a minute here. Why, why was last week a, a postponement and this week a forfeit? And mm. I think, and I think that I understand the league doesn't necessarily want to uh, have to really go all out and explain every little bit of this. But I think, given the circumstances, they kind of have to because they haven't. They have to answer to Portland right now because if you you know when you look at the standings and you give one of their rivals in the standings three points and you don't give them three points, you have to you have to say why. And right. so the league does have a lot to answer for right now. Uh, it's it's a confusing situation because I don't know what multiple protocols means in the sense that they're have to forfeit a match. Like it's not like, Hey, several players tested positive, so they can't field the team. This almost sounds like the team, maybe like, I don't know, held a practice or something with COVID positive play. Like I, I, I we, we need to know bottom line. And, and I think that you can tip the, uh, a, a bit of own goal towards the league's way. If they refuse to, to kind of uh, clarify what is exactly got on here. 
Agreed on that. The spirit of shambles right now. Uh, and a bonus shout for me real quick on an actual own goal of the weekend uh, to all the traveling supporters. Uh, check it out uh, when you can. Real Salt Lake versus LAFC. Uh, an own goal winner, actually. Um, check it. I mean, truly just a back pass to the keeper that he missed. And it goes in the net for the win. Yeah, yeah, he got uh, one so, of those one of those miscommunications. Goalie thinks he's going to play the ball. Defender thinks he's going to play the ball. And uh, Mexico national team's David Ochoa, uh, the victim here, mm. and giving up the goal. And there you have it, Jared. Your own goal of the day. Yeah, we got to stay. Uh, we'll stay in MLS with uh, FC Dallas, mm. who sent out an email to supporters last week with a special promo uh, as they were getting ready oh. for their. September 11th festivities or remembrance or whatever they were doing for September 11th, they decided that it would be an appropriate thing to do to sell tickets for $9 and 11 cents. So whenever you can uh, capitalize on a national tragedy like that, I guess you absolutely have to. Uh, It seems to me the correct move would have been, I don't know, sell tickets for $25 and donate all the proceeds to charity or, you know, to any to sell them for any amount that is not $9 and 11 cents because you look callous and uncaring and trying to capitalize off a tragedy, which makes you thus look like shit. Jesus Christ. I mean, and did they also like hand out, you know, those like inflatable clappers or whatever, like in the shape of the Twin Towers with like, yeah. you know, it, like fired, you know, decals on it or something. Jesus yeah, Al- Christ. it was Al Qaeda flag night at the stadium for the first 5,000 fans. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, yes. On cold day for sure. Um, all right. Let's keep moving along. Next segment. Uh- Cunty haircut of the week. Uh, the Premier League is back, and so are Leeds and their army of man buns and ponytails. Uh, and I'm giving mine to Jack Harrison, who sets himself apart from his teammates uh, by buzzing some Harry Potter-style lightning bolt into his, uh, and bonus points for the greased-up eyebrows to complement. Uh, guessing that's just a product of previously being owned by City, who are obviously owned by the United Arab Emirates, and thus having unlimited access to crude oil. Yeah, that's my cunty haircut of the week, Jared. Who's yours? Uh, I'm going to stay silent on this because you have besmirched the name of a great Wake Forest Demon Deacon and Jack Harrison. So I'm going <laughs> to sit this out out of protest because I, I I will not abide by this slander. Yeah, fair play. And I probably didn't do it justice. Uh, so hopefully the traveling supporters just skipped over that one. Uh, yeah, segment number four um, in another quote, recurring segment that is already over. I'm devastated, Jared. Uh, Will Tiago ever start a game of football again? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, And just within a couple of weeks of us uh, uh, starting this segment up, um, uh, obviously missing out on the Spain national team. So we thought this was going to extend on for for a while. Uh, I believe, as you said, this one actually might last, unlike the Pedri one. Um, But yeah, Tiago got the start for Liverpool this weekend. He was excellent. Uh, he was active, uh, playing crucial passes uh, that led to goals. And uh, I would just file that under things that make you go, hmm. Because, again, as I've said, I have no idea how this guy wasn't getting consistent time and starting games for both Spain and Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool. Um, but, yeah, not really sure what to replace this with. But I'm sure we will find another, quote, recurring segment uh, that, that'll be done in two weeks also, I'm sure. Uh, anything to say about Thiago, Jared, or Liverpool? No, I mean, I guess literally it just takes a half a team – coming back from international duty and not being 90 minutes fit so for him to get a game. So it'll be the real, the real test is if he starts next week. 
Yeah, there you have it. Uh, and let's see, moving on. Um, oh, how about a new segment here, Jared? Uh, we're going to call this one Get the Sack or a Pat on the Back. Um, it, we're starting to get to that point in the year now where people are overreacting or underreacting uh, to their managers, right? Already calling for the sack for someone who's, you know, lost two or three on the spin or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to uh, revisit this uh, every couple of weeks and, and see uh, who we think should get the sack or a pat on the back. I'll start it off. Uh, who do I think should get the sack this week? Uh, actually, Marcel Bielsa. I, I mean, I know they love him. I know he's completely transformed, you know, speaking of leads. Uh, and, and after being promoted, not just one of those like relegation fodder teams. I mean, actually finishing mid-table. Um, but I just wonder if the Bielsa system, the experiment, um, is kind of not not over, but but faltering and fading at this point i mean how long can you as a player can you just listen to that same drivel over and over literally train your tits off uh and just have to run 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 as much as they do uh and here they are they they've dropped uh, a bunch of points that they lost on the weekend and uh they're sitting in 17th place right now i might give uh, bielsa the sack uh who i will give a pat on the back to though uh marco van bommel um, Wolfsburg, Jared, again, you're, you're the Bundesliga guy, uh, sitting atop the table. Yeah. Four out of four for them. A couple, uh, they're scoring a lot of goals, uh, keeping a lot of clean sheets. They're, they're pretty much doing everything that you want to be doing. As you said, they are the only, uh, currently the only unbeaten team, or I should say, uh, undefeated team, uh, four out of four currently sitting at, as I said, top of the table again, um, only one goal against in the four matches, 12 points, two points up on Dortmund. And again, starting their Champions League adventure this week. So, uh, you know, we're going to see if they're able to put it together while competing on both fronts at the same time. All right. There you have it. And uh, who's yours, Jared? Who gets the sack and who gets a pat on the back? Well, this is this the sack part for me is not anything new. Uh, it is Steve Bruce who has the worst winning percentage of any manager in Premier League history that is managed. How, how did I know you were going to go with Steve Bruce on that one, Jerry? Yeah, I, I, like, <laughs> like this is – it's fucking The worst? Ridiculous. He's actually got the worst, by the way? Of, of any manager who's, like, managed over 100 matches. So when we get rid of, like, the caretakers or the guy who were, like, one and done or, you know, uh, Frank DeBoer or whatever, like, 0-7, like, all right, not counting right. – like, but, the, of, like, and you, and you think about that, like, that group of guys who just constantly bounces from one job to the other takes over like the relegation teams. Like, you know, those are all the guys at the bottom, like your hour dices, your, you know, even your pardus or whatever. And, and, and Steve mm. Bruce is still below every one of them. He has won like 27% of every, of each Premier League match he has managed. Like, I, I just like, what else? It, what else it, it, it defies, it defies logic. Like it doesn't make sense how this guy continues to be in charge of a Premier League club. I don't, I don't understand it. And it just, I mean, it just, it's, it's it, 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 every week he remains in the job. Every, every game that he is still there, it's just a kick in the nuts to the fans of Newcastle. And, and I think I'm not being biased when I say this, but Newcastle is considered to be like, to have the best fans in the Premier League, right? Just the most passionate, the mm. most like ardent supporters that just, that literally live and die with their team. There's literally nothing the fuck the hell's going on in Newcastle, right? Like that, this is it. And these, 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 and they turn up every week, 50,000, like right. And there's a full stadium. Right. And, and just every week they get kicked in the nuts by an owner who just does not care. And just, justifies like having this manager there who is absolutely incompetent and it, it's yeah uh, i'm gonna leave it there because i could just do this all day yeah no i'm with you man uh well who gets a pat on the back for you 
Well, I think uh, I'm going to use this opportunity, I think, to transition into our, our next segment. And I'm actually going to give one to, to Jose Mourinho on this one. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, and look, I don't like the guy. I don't uh, – I'm not a fan of his. I, I usually root for his team to lose. But they get that late winner uh, over the weekend. And to see him, like, sprinting down the sideline like he's managing his first ever match, right. it was it was cool. Like, again, I, I don't like him. But – he is kind of endearing himself with the pizza on the train and the, and now the, the running down the sideline, there are certain managers that when they do it, we absolutely just gush and go, Oh, like, look at that. That's like, you know, like a Bielsa to your point before, if Bielsa runs down the sideline and like jumps in on it with his players, we all like, we all romanticize how great it is that Bielsa loves his players that much. Well, I don't want to be a hypocrite about it. I'm going to romanticize Mourinho doing it as well. And he gets a pat on the back for me today and he's still in his first season. So, you know, he hasn't blown up everything yet. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, yeah. So Jose Mourinho, who cares usually on the scale of, one to ten I'm I'm a one out of ten I'll, I'll go up to like one and a half because yeah I mean a thousandth game and getting a stoppage time winner uh and, and obviously Roma are top of the table I mean you just have to kind of tip your hat a little bit to the guy so I'll, I'll bump it up to about one and a half out of ten that's how much I care and I've already mentioned Voldemort's name too many times so I'm going to leave it at that uh that's going to do it for the segments Jared uh we're going to wrap <clears> up <throat> here uh as we always do uh with stoppage time winners uh, as I understand it, uh, you would like to use this time and space uh, for a little something a little bit more uh, serious for the traveling supporters. So, Jared, I will defer all my time to you. Yeah, obviously, we don't get too serious too often, but I think this uh, this does warrant it. Obviously, this past weekend being the 20th anniversary of 9-11 was felt not only in uh, sports, but obviously society as a whole. Uh, and we saw a lot of, you know, really powerful, strong moments uh, and, and kind of remembrance uh, situations across the board. I thought the Red Bulls uh, and DC United on Saturday night had a very nice one. Uh, the national anthem was very hard to even get through as a fan without, you know, a tear coming to the eye. But uh, I do want to look at actually outside soccer for a second, talk about the NFL's uh, pregame festivities yesterday. Mm. And uh, the national anthem was done by uh, Juliet Candela. Her father, John, was killed in the World Trade Center attacks. And she did a what I thought was an absolutely beautiful rendition. And, you know, to me, even being a fan in the stands was hard to get through it, uh, the, the anthem without a tear coming to my eyes. So to actually sing it so beautifully uh, was amazing. And the reason I bring her up additionally is that even though I've never met her and I am not related to her, uh, my first cousins are uh, my cousin, Jordan and Sarah on their mm. mom's side. Uh, she is their first cousin. Their uncle John was obviously, as I mentioned, killed in the attack. So uh, it, it did hold a specifically poignant personal, uh, you know, kind of feeling for me as well. Uh, my love and support for my family who obviously uh, has been going through this and, and were emotional themselves yesterday. But as I said, for her to have the strength and, and ability to uh, to sing like that so beautifully and something that is so intensely personal for her. Um, and, you know, as we continue to sit here and, and try and deal with what has happened over the last 20 years, especially given recent events, uh, I just have to give a tip of my cap to her and, and to really anyone who uh, was negatively affected and lost somebody on those days 20 years ago, because that obviously is bigger than sport, bigger than soccer and, and uh, good for us to remember that. You know, we still have to be there for each other, despite the fact that we have this diversity, the divisiveness uh, in our country mm -hmm. right now. And, and so I got to leave it there and, and just kind of, again, tip my cap for her. 
No, Jared, really appreciate that. Great stuff. Uh, and, and for the traveling supporters who might not know, uh, but we are originally from northern New Jersey, uh, where many families had, you know, parents who commuted into the city. Uh, my dad worked in the World Trade Center. I'll save my story, you know, for another time. Uh, but yeah, we all experienced it on, on that day, wondering whether uh, our parents were actually dead or alive. And, uh, and actually, Jared, yeah, speaking of the family thing, I didn't know about that actual family uh, tie in your story. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that we obviously talk about very often. It's it's it's, uh, it's a difficult situation. But when I had heard that, you know, she was, you know, she it's not the first time she sang an anthem. Uh, you know, she obviously has a great voice, so it's been used before. But you know, just I, obviously, this was the first time on such a a widespread scale where, um, you know, literally to the entire country, the entire world, her voice was heard, and, and to have it be on the twentieth anniversary. Uh, as I said, very powerful and, and meaningful. And as I said, even though I'm not directly related to her, I do feel that kinship through my family. So uh, that is, you know, that is my personal story. And, and so that's where we are. Yeah, no, thanks a lot, Jared. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Uh, and I appreciate your uh, taking the time in general. Uh, much, much obliged. Uh, and thank you to the traveling supporters for listening today. Uh, but that's going to be it. Uh, as always, no marketing or social media. So if you were mildly entertained, please tell a friend, spread the love. Godspeed. Bye con Dios. And cheers, y'all. Bye bye. <laughs>